Our discussion of God's Big Ten has brought us to the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not murder. Jesus taught us in his famous Sermon on the Mount that if we are angry with our brother, we have already committed thought murder. What about this anger-murder connection? Our study leader Dave Wurtson begins our discussion by sharing a story that illustrates how anger got to him and caused him to commit a stoning. Check it out. You all remember my story of killing the cat. Remember Mary and I were working on our driveway back before Kim so graciously helped us and my Jonathan and Joel helped us to pave it. And we had a great big rut right in the middle of that driveway. And there was a, just a real great big rut, and I'm just mechanically oriented. I took a great big stone and put it in the rut so that when the car came running, it took me a long time to do it, though. It was a big stone. Man, I had to lean down and lift it just right and throw it in the hole, and so that when the car came in, it wouldn't just go clunk. It would just go kind of light clunk, and then it could go down the rest of the way. And Mary, I, you know, I worked like crazy, put gravel around and everything else, and Mary came out. And she said, what in the world is that big stone doing out there in the middle of the driveway? Man, that anger. Husband, you ever get angry when your wife talks to you in a certain tone of voice? So I grabbed that stone, and this time, man, it was light. Man, I grabbed that stone, and I just chucked it at a shadow. Nothing was there except our beautiful cat. Beautiful gray cat right there. And man, I just stoned that cat. It took off like a beeline and went Pfft. I took it down to C.T. Wofford, our great church veterinarian. I said, please resurrect this cat, C.T. But it was a goner. Man, we would have had the raising of Lazarus if that cat came back. Why did that happen? Because I was angry. And that's sad. I mean, it's really tough when you had to go to your kid and say, I stoned your cat. <laughs> now, we laugh about that, but, you know, that could have just as easily been a person. That's the way it happens. Especially you guys that drink just a little bit. I want to share something with you. In today's pressurized modern society, it's hard enough for you as men to handle the strife. If you drink a little bit too much, that anger can explode and you can do something that you'll forever, forever forget. You say, how do you know that? Because I've sat, I've sat in cells with guys in Huntsville that were guys and girls just like you and just like me. But instead of killing a cat, there was a person on the other end. And they just lost it. They just drank a little bit. It was a little bit too much pressure at work. They're filled with anger. All, these, all this hostility was just seething within. And in a split second of time, that temper exploded. And somebody lost their life. The book of Numbers is saying that's a very serious thing. Very, very serious. And oh, how it calls the people of God to face what's going on inside and to be accountable to one another and not to tank anger. It's also very important for us as believers to realize that in a court of law, 
it's very important to analyze was there premeditation some of you are going to serve on juries that's a sacred responsibility in, a, in any case but especially in this kind of a case and you need to think clearly it's not just a mystery novel it's the real thing and it's very serious now that's murder in the first degree where there's malicious intent where there's hatred now let's switch gears and let's look at another form of taking a life which is manslaughter look at verse 22 but if without hostility in other words there's no hostility at all no anger someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unintentionally or without seeing him drops a stone in him that could kill him and he dies then since he was not his enemy and he did not intend to harm him the assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood in other words the relative that wants to come and take his life the assembly now get this the assembly must protect the accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled and he must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil in other words if there is some kind of an accident it's something that you never dreamed would happen and it's something that you wish never did happen and you'll live with it the rest of your life it's an accident and all kinds of accidents can happen in life and what the book of numbers is telling us is that that is manslaughter and under old testament law they needed to run to the city of refuge and at the city of refuge that case would be carefully evaluated was there malicious intent was there premeditation was there anger you know that that hostility involved in it if there wasn't it was just an accident then what it's saying the person had to live in that city of refuge you say well dave that's kind of a of rough punishment why would they do that because it would keep a blood feud from developing much of the problems in our city flows from the fact that there's never justice that's done and then people are crammed back together real closely and so you just have this building all this tremendous building hostility between families and clans many of the mafia has been doing that for centuries in the Old Testament, they helped to protect against that because they didn't let the person, even when they took a life accidentally, they didn't let them go back and live in that city where every single day the blood avenger would have to come in contact with them. And there was this principle where God graciously, graciously took care that there would not develop blood feuds. Much of the gang warfare is related to blood feuds. A lie of the problem in Ireland goes on and on and on. Blood feuds, fuel, fuel between different groups of people. The Old Testament tried to put a, put a lock on that to try to keep it from happening. I know how we need to pray that our own culture will develop ways to be able to apply those principles. That number one, that there will be a strong, fair, judicial punishment against those who commit murder in the first degree. Second of all, that when there's manslaughter, murder because of accident, unintentional, we need to have other ways of dealing with that, which our law courts do. The laws and the principles very much, as far as the ideal, follow much of what the scriptures saying. But we're going to find out in just a minute that our culture has largely moved away from this sense of really looking to find the truth, really trying to find out exactly what happened, Instead, we've developed into a kind of a competitive plea bargaining where justice is not the issue. It's what will work, what pragmatically works within a courtroom setting. 
So let's move into the second phase. Now that we have the definition, it means murder. We define two kinds of murders, murder in the first degree with malicious intent and accidental death. Let's talk about the punishment of murder. And here we have the principle of respect for truth. The Old Testament and the New Testament stresses that the focus needs to be on truth. Not competitiveness, not who's the slickest talker, not who's the greatest debater, but the question is, what's the truth? And second of all, there needs to be the expression of the respect for life. And that includes respect for the life of the person that was taken. If we turn back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, we have way back even before the children of Israel were created. Even before God called Abraham out, we have a command given to Noah. Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we have these words. Genesis 9, 5, and 6. It says, And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. And then it tells us this. Why? For in the image of God, Remind us of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In the image of God has God made man. What the Noahic covenant is telling us is that every one of you are the reflection, you are the representative of your creator. You're not a glorified monkey. You're not just the present ascendant result of natural selection. You are made in the image of God, which means every single one of you have the right to life. If you kill a fly, according to Shirley MacLaine's philosophy, it's either just as serious or just as trivial as taking your life, a human being, because we're all just relatively manifestations of the same thing. What I want you to see is that the Holy Scriptures militate against that. They argue strongly against that. They say, no, the taking of an animal's life is not the same as taking the life of a human being. It's very, very different. Why? Because there's a, there's a massive chasm that exists biblically between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. And the difference is made in the image of God. And I want you to start to really think. I want you to think morally and philosophically. In our culture right now, a lot of normal, everyday Americans are throwing their hands up in exasperation saying, I can't believe what is happening. I can't believe, you know, men alive, gay rights and, and this kind of rights and that kind of rights. And I don't understand what's happening. What you see happening is the outworking of different philosophies that are very strong within our culture. And they're very different. If I did not have this book in my hands, if I did not have the Word of God, and if I believed, if I believed that life is just chance and matter and the throw of the dice, then it's up for grabs. It's up for grabs what you do sexually. It's up for grabs what you do as far as my possessions. If you want to steal them and I, if, if I can't defend them, it's up for grabs ethically if there is no Lord God. You see that blatantly expressed. And all the way through these Ten Commandments, you're going to see this. 
One of the ideas that I hammered home to you last time we talked together, and I want you to understand this. It says, honor your father and your mother. It says, thou shalt not murder it. Murphy Brown might want to say, I think that's bigoted. God says, that's my design. I want you to really understand that. I didn't come up with the idea that it was supposed to be a daddy and a mommy in a house. I want to share something with you. It's very important to understand. God says that a man living with a man is not a family. A woman living with a woman is not a family. Very important to understand. I didn't make that up. And we're not quite ready to say we're going to have rights for those who take a life. Although we're rapidly there with the issue of abortion, we are very much saying, if I want to, then I can take a life. And abortion just isn't quite open enough for our culture to get sick to their stomach about it. It's too close. In fact, everyone screams bloody murder when you show the real thing, when you show the parts of the babies that are sucked out, when you show what really happened, when you show sonogram the developing babies, suddenly everybody screams foul. The reason that's so is because if our culture got hit in the face with what murder really is, then it starts to wake us up. And God has told us that there's a design plan. Man is made in His image. Our culture has major elements that are saying, no, that's not so. God didn't make it in His image. Who knows whether there's anything out there? And so everything is up for grabs. Like if 51% of our society decides it's okay to murder, is it okay to murder? It's an amazing that when we come to murder, suddenly we get a little bit more ethical. On sexual areas that we're going to get into in the coming weeks, we're out to lunch. We've already lost it in a popular sense. Murder, we're not quite there. Except in the horrible, horrible, devastating exception of abortion. But slowly but surely, you're going to see it coming. If thou shalt not commit adultery, it doesn't apply. Then either will thou shalt not steal and either will thou shalt not murder. And our cities are already living out that ethic. In the hearts of our city, they've already jettisoned no honoring of father and mother, no honoring of sexuality from God-given standpoint, and therefore murder and stealing becomes a way of life. I want you to feel, brothers and sisters, I want you to feel that connectedness. I want you to see how that all fits together. Now, God says that because we are made in His image, that when a life is taken, it must be taken very seriously. That if someone maliciously snuffs out the life of another, we cannot take that lightly. Now, they did provide for a fair trial, which is very important. I want you to look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. When you would flee to one of these cities of refuge... There had to be a trial, and there would be witnesses that were called. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, we get a feel for how that was developed. Look at verse 15. It says that one witness, this is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So it tells us, first of all, that in the trying of a first-degree murder in old Israel, 
it was very important to have more than one witness. Circumstantial evidence was not taken as a precedent for analyzing and being able to convict someone. Now, in our legal system, circumstantial evidence can, given a, can be given a great, great due in a murder trial. And it raises very difficult ethical questions and, and legal questions because often in murders, there aren't witnesses and it's very hard to deal with it. But what Deuteronomy is giving to us is kind of a pattern of what we need to take seriously. And I want you to see that it takes the witness in a courtroom very seriously. And it says just one person's word isn't enough. We need to have two or three. And then it tells us something very important about witnesses. Look at verse 16. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation of the witness, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then they were to do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and they will be afraid and they will never again, will they with such an evil thing, will it be done among them? Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. There we have another commandment. We moved right down the list. I want you to feel the interconnectedness. Thou shalt not bear false witness. We often apply that to the area of lying. And it does apply that. But in its original context, it primarily meant not to lie in a judicial courtroom. A false witness in old Israel was a heinous, diabolical crime. In our culture, it means very little. And people will lie. The question is, you to find someone that can lie effectively and won't get caught by a lie detector test. And I want us as the people of God to recognize how evil that is. In the Old Testament, it conjures up stories like, like Ahab wanting to have Naboth's vineyard. So Jezebel says that's easy to take care of. And she writes a letter and it has two thugs lie about Naboth and they accuse him in the public square and they have a big trial and these two guys in a farce follow, trying to follow the Old Testament law, only twisting it and perverting it, they lie about Naboth and he's stoned, he's killed. And Ahab just innocently, supposedly, goes in and takes over his vineyard. The Lord God of heaven said, I've had enough. And he snuffed out the life of Jezebel and her consort. Because false witnesses just really sit in his divine, divine insides, and he hates that. So what we have in the courtroom, we have this feel for there needs to be fairness, the character of the witnesses is very, very, very important. But then I do want you to see that when there was a fair trial and it was determined by valid testimony that someone had, had taken a life, then capital punishment was the punishment for murder in the first degree. Well, I know that you're going to ask, and a lot of the college students debate this, what about capital punishment in our own culture? There's many, many factors that enter into this, many things we need to pray about Number one, one of the things that really concerns me is that when I go into Huntsville, when I go into prisons in other parts of our country, why is it that the vast numbers of people there are minorities? Why is that? And I'm not so sure that there's really fairness in our judicial system. 
I'm not really sure that we have witnesses that are true. Why is it that if you have enough money, you can plea bargain? But if you don't have any money, you get the whole book thrown at you. That's wrong. That's what I want you to feel. And it's part of a democracy. We need to feel that. We need to understand that. When you serve, you say, well, Dave, what does it have to do with me? Many of you could sit on a court and a jury, and you need to remember this. Don't cynically sit there and say, well, it's just a big game. It's just a big act. You be different. You stand for truth. You stand for fairness. You be honest. You evaluate. Be different. Don't fall into the pattern. Well, everybody, you know, it's just the way the game is played. If you're a lawyer, some of you kids that want to get trained in law, bury yourself in the Old Testament law. This is the foundation of Western civilization. Even if I were a secularist, I would argue that. You have to be an idiot to not feel that Deuteronomy and Exodus have profound legal significance for both the English and the American cultures specifically. And I would hold that they have ramifications for any culture, anywhere, anytime. It doesn't mean that every single dot and tittle of the law is fulfilled in a literal way. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about a way of thinking. I'm teaching you about fairness, about the importance of witnesses, about the importance of determining that they tell the truth. And all of those factors were involved before someone's life could be taken. But in old Israel, and according to Romans chapter 13, the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. Now you can have all the sociological studies that you want, but God's Word says that we are cheapening human life when we say that we need to, we need to reform them. The Old Testament doesn't talk about that. It says there needs to be justice. There, a courtroom is not a church. As your pastor, I will always forgive. I will always proclaim the, the good news to you. I will always believe that you can become a child of God or that you can be renewed in your relationship with God. I don't believe that you can do anything that will separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. And if you commit murder, I will go right into the place where you have your execution taking place. And if you know Christ as your Savior, I will assure you that you will be in heaven because your sins are forgiven. As your pastor, I guarantee you that I will forgive you, I will be with you, but if I'm your judge, if I was a judge, and you take a life in first degree, hostility and anger and premeditation, then as your judge, because I respect life, and because if sin unrestrained in a society runs like a cancer, in the courtroom, it's not a place of forgiveness. It's a place of justice. And that's what Romans 13 is talking about. And you need to think very clearly about the difference. We move into the third area as we talk about prevention of murder. Because that's the big thing. How are we going to prevent murder from taking place? We need to realize, first of all, something I've already taught you. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. Let me repeat it for you. It says, don't you know that it's not an external problem? Don't you know that it happens from within? Because from the heart come evil thoughts, anger, hatred, adultery, stealing. The Lord Jesus is the one they diagnose that the problem is not externally. It's not the environment. 
It's not, it's not something that we take in from the outside. It is from within. So the ultimate cure for thou shalt not murder is going to be to deal with our anger from within. You see, it's not going to work across this area for us to preach nice, pious things and it does zilch in our lives. In other words, if there's someone that you just hate their guts and you've expressed that and they know it, you reamed somebody out this week and you're just, you just totally destroyed them and that anger is still part of your soul and you haven't gone to them and said, listen, I am sorry. I was really wrong. Be honest. Go and get that right. Do the right thing. Life is way, way too short. Some of you sit on hostility for century after century after century. And I beg every one of you to open yourselves up and let the Lord convict us about our anger. The story about the cat is not really a funny story, is it? It's really a story about the, the dirt and the bitterness that can be deep inside of every one of our hearts. And Jesus said, if you say to your brother, you idiot, you're expressing murderous violence. You've already done it in your heart. But Jesus is the good physician that comes into the sickness of our soul. And he says, I know about it. And I've already taken the penalty for you. You do deserve to die. But I want you to live. And so I died in your place. You see, that's where all of our anger, all of our hostility flows away when we really understand what took place at the foot of the cross. When you stand at the foot of the cross, ask yourself about your anger. Ask yourself about what your enemies have done to you. Ask yourselves about what those people that have offended you. Ask yourselves about people that have abused you. At the foot of the cross, it can be forgiven. It can be healed. Have you brought your anger to the cross? Why not allow Jesus to bring forgiveness deep into your soul and drown out the embers of anger before they ignite a forest fire of violence? Short fuses and domestic fury have caused the American home to become one of the most dangerous locations in our land. Christ can penetrate this internal cauldron of hatred and create peace and acceptance. Next week, Dave begins our discussion of the Seventh Commandment. Our society still believes murder in the first degree is wrong. The Seventh Commandment is on much shakier ground. Why in the world did God tell men and women that they could only have one sexual partner? He has some good reasons. So don't miss your next opportunity to encounter the truth.